We want to continue our study in the New Testament church. And as you may recall, we are studying the messages that Christ gave to the seven churches in Asia Minor, recorded for us in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. There's an insert in your bulletin if you'd like to make use of it uh, to jot down some notes and ideas and maybe things for further study in your own study of God's Word. Now let's ask the Lord for his uh, teaching and um, special work in preparing our hearts to receive his truth and to be changed and transformed by it. Father, we do marvel at your goodness to us and the bounty of blessings that you pour out upon your people through Jesus Christ, the Lord. We thank you, Father, that we have the certainty of knowing that having paid it all, that Christ Jesus, having accomplished our justification, how much more certain is it that we will be delivered into your presence and to behold you face to face transformed into your glory and the image of your Son. We thank you for your precious word and how it really is the means that you use for your spirit to grant us wisdom and understanding, to refresh and uh, invigorate our spirits, and to transform us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. As we open your word today, Father, give me clarity, give me wisdom, and may I be an instrument of blessing to all who hear. And for all of us, Father, may your spirit prepare our hearts to receive and understand your truth for the glory of your name, and our eternal good. Through the only one who is worthy, Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> what does it mean to be a Christian? It seems like a simple enough question, and yet I think we're all familiar with the fact that there are a variety of answers that have been given as to exactly what that means. What is a Christian? Well, maybe not as relevant today as it was even a decade ago or certainly back in the 1900s. Individuals would say, oh, you're an American, you must be a Christian. And how they identified just our national association with whether or not we're a Christian. To some individuals, it still today has to do with the fact that they have identified themselves with a church, with a spiritual religious group that calls themselves Christians. And because they are identified with that group, they would think they must be a Christian. Could be a Protestant denomination, could be a Catholic denomination. Sometimes even with some of the offshoots and cults, individuals are thought to be Christian because of their allegiance to it. But for yourself, 
What does it mean to be a Christian? What is a Christian? Checking in Webster's, he says the following. A Christian is one who believes, professes to believe, or who is assumed to believe in the religion of Christ and whose behavior exemplifies his teachings or one who belongs to a Christian church. When Jesus gave a commission to the original apostles recorded for us in the book of Matthew as well as at the end of each of the Gospels, but the one we're most familiar with in Matthew 28, where Christ comes to them and says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on the earth. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey whatsoever things I have commanded you. Now, you said, you asked the question, what is a Christian? And here all of a sudden we're talking about the commission to go and make disciples. Well, the initial term used of the followers of Christ was that of a disciple. And what we find in the book of Acts recorded for us in Acts chapter 11 is that the disciples were first called Christians, little Christ in Antioch. And so we see that the foundation for this term Christian really comes from the idea of being a student, a learner, a follower, a disciple of Christ. And we don't have to read too long in the book of Acts, or excuse me, in the gospel records to find out that some of those disciples did not persist in their walk with the Lord. In the same way, we find in the book of Acts that even in the church, there were individuals who, although they professed faith in Christ, began that walk with Christ, fell away. And when Paul wrote his letters to Timothy and Titus, he reminded them with great tears that there were individuals who were actually part of his missionary journey teams that now are the enemies of the cross of Christ. What does it mean to be a Christian? And I say that because I think today we equate something that we do, something that man does to become a Christian. When in reality, from a biblical standpoint, becoming a Christian, being a Christian, is a miracle of grace. Remember a discussion that Jesus had with Nicodemus? Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus says, well, how shall I do this? Jesus did not say, pray this prayer and you will now be one of my children. Jesus did not say, walk this aisle, 
and you will become my my disciple. Jesus did not say, be uh, washed in water of baptism and your sins will be washed away and you will be one of my disciples. We believe becoming a Christian today is a mechanical process that is accomplished by the thinking, the activity, and the actions of man rather than recognizing that being a Christian and biblical Christianity is a miracle of grace. It is not that it is an individual who is born by blood, by the will of man. He is born by the flesh, but he is born by God. And it is the reality that the Spirit of God blows where he wills. And you cannot see the wind, but you see its effect. And so it is with everyone who is born by the Spirit. What I need to understand is that being a Christian is not natural. Being a Christian is supernatural. Being a Christian is being an object of divine intervention and work. Being a Christian is a miracle of grace. When we turn to the book of Revelation and Jesus Christ is giving a disclosure through John, commissioning John, he did so to tell his bondservants, what must yet take place. And as he did so, he provided John with the format for how to structure this letter that we think of as the book of Revelation. He said in chapter 1, verse 19, John, write, first the things that you have seen, chapter 1, the things which are the churches of chapters 2 and 3, and the things which will be after these things, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, to the end of the book. In addition to that, we know that John was commissioned to write these letters specifically to seven local assemblies. And in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, and in verse 11, Jesus said, write in a scroll or a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And what we know is that when these messages were delivered, recorded for us in Revelations 2 and 3, we have the genuine condition of each of those local assemblies. In other words, what was the church at Ephesus like? Well, we find out in Revelation chapter 2. If you want to know what was the church at Philadelphia like, you find out in Revelation chapter 3, etc. Each of these specific messages from the all-seeing mind of God were a declaration of the true condition of each of these churches. We know he selected seven from a divine standpoint, from a biblical standpoint. The idea of seven speaks of completeness. And we learn at the end of each of the letters that it wasn't just intended for the church at Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Laodicea, Philadelphia, and Ephesus, Because at the very conclusion of each of the message, he says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so through them, 
that message was being conveyed for the benefit of God's people in that apostolic day. And the other thing that we have seen is that as he gives this complete picture, he's providing us with the ability to say, what's the condition of the church today? These seven give us a full picture of the church in every generation and in our own generation. And in a very real sense, it is the head of the church, Jesus Christ, speaking to everyone who says, I'm a Christian. I'm one of his disciples. I'm a follower of the Lord. Now, as we looked at this perspective that is given to us by the Lord, as we have already seen, there are certain things that need to be of concern for God's people. And basically, different problems that the evil one brought to pass in that day, in the same way, is still at work doing today. Now, if you think about the historical development, what it I think is amazing is John wrote this, and we're going to just round everything off, in the mid-90s. So we'll just say, for argument's sake, 95. These churches were founded in the late 50s, early 60s. 30 years have passed. Isn't it amazing how many deviations can happen in 30 years? And so there is a warning there as the history of the church so clearly reinforces, the church has the propensity to move away from truth. And God's people are told there's a need for vigilance. Remember, Jude said, you know, I'd like to sit around with you and just talk about how wonderful it is to be a Christian. I'd like to talk with you about our common salvation in Jesus Christ. I'd like to just sit around and say, look at what God's doing in my life. And you can say, look at what God's doing in your life. But I'm constrained to tell you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. You know why? Because certain people have crept in and you're not even aware of it. And they begin to pervert the truth. So what was the first concern? Look at my zeal for the Lord. Look at how busy I am in Christian things. Look at the ministries that God's given me, but I have this against you. You left your first love. The fact that activity crowds out what is most important, and what is most important is growing closer to Christ and in your relationship with him. The second thing that becomes something for us to be concerned about is the caution that he gave really to two of the churches, and that has to do with the pollution of truth. Now, the pollution of truth, as it was manifested in Pergamum, had to do with Christian living and the perversion of grace. To begin to think that I'm covered in grace, it doesn't matter how I live, and the teaching that becomes known as licentiousness. That where sin abounds, grace superabounds. But then to the church at Thyatira, you have, you tolerate, excuse me, that woman Jezebel to teach. And so we look at the historical setting and what we find is substituting 
the thinking of men, the religions of men, with the revelation of God. And so it is a pollution of God's truth. And where no longer is it sola scriptura, no longer is it that the Bible is our ultimate authority, but we begin to embrace the teachings and the thinkings and the way of men. And that encompasses so much of the professing church today, where we substitute man's ideas and religious thoughts, man's philosophies, man's teachings for the truth of God. And the subtle thing that I want to underscore here before we look at what's before us today, I want to reemphasize something that J.I. Packer said in one of his works. No one can say that the Bible is his personal authority who is ignorant of its content. I need to be a student of this book. I need to understand the things that God has given to us for our good and our well-being. And so, the pollution of truth. Now we come to the church at Sardis. And here is a group professing to be a Christian. Back to my statement, what is it to be a Christian? Notice what he says of them. He's the one who has the seven or the complete spirit of God that is the Holy Spirit who bestows it. He's the one who upholds the seven stars in his right hand. He's the authority in the church upholding them. I know your deeds. You have a name. You have a reputation. When people think of you because of what you're saying about yourself, you have a name that you are alive, but you're what? Dead. Now, I know there's a debate about exactly what all of this means, but one thing I have found in my own study in the Scripture, there is never a time where the term you are dead is used of genuine believers. And he even makes a contrast later in this letter. If you notice over in verse uh, 4, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And so here is a local church. And what it's characterized by are individuals who are professing to be the followers of Christ. They're his disciples. They are individuals that identified with the church through the ordinance that the Lord had given, very obviously. And that is a way of publicly declaring that I'm one of his followers. Just as was true when Christ walked on the earth, the water baptism either of John or the water baptism of the followers of Christ and the apostles that are with him. And of those disciples, you know what happened? They said, these things you're saying are hard to understand, and many of his disciples walked with him no more. I can make a public profession of faith. I can tell others I'm a Christian. I can be an individual that has a zeal, in a sense, for the things of God. I could be on one of the most effective missionary teams preaching the gospel in the world, that of the Apostle Paul, and still be an enemy of the cross of Christ. 
And so you have the reputation that you're alive. You have life, but you're dead. You're dead. Wake up. Come to your senses. Strengthen the things that remain. There's still an element of God's truth that is being communicated in your local fellowship. But it's about ready to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Now, if the actions I am doing, the Christian ministry I'm pursuing, is not complete in the eyes of God, what's missing? They're zealous. They're doing their activities in the name of Christ. Well, the first thing that's missing is faith. Human efforts, human programs to kind of mechanically crank things out and a failure to understand it's not by strength and not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And we look at Christian entities that are great machines that are stamping out things in the name of Christ. Doesn't mean they're bad. I'm not minimizing the fact that they might not have an effective ministry. But you and I need to be sure that we don't look at the mechanical process and the programs and fail to appreciate that apart from me, said Christ, you can do nothing. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. That which is not a faith is what? Sin. And so here are individuals that are involved and engaged in the activity, but it is not a humble reliance upon the Lord. Paul made it very clear when he spoke to Timothy. He said, there are individuals in the last days, and please remember the last days began with the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, and we've been in them for almost 2,000 years. There are individuals who are going to come and grow increasingly worse who will be deceiving and be deceived. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. The idea that it's something we do to either give spiritual life to individuals or to accomplish the things of God. I think there's another ingredient in there. It's not just that these deeds are incomplete because they're not sourced out of generated by faith. But do you remember what Paul said when he wrote to the Corinthians? Recorded for us in that chapter that we think of as the great love chapter. If I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or clanging symbol. If I have prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. When I go to First John, First John tells us that one of the distinctive characteristics 
between those who are genuinely the people of God and those who are part of the local congregation but are not are the individuals that have love. And the reason they do is because we love because he first loved us. And no one can say he is born of God who does not love. And what's the reality of that? How can you say you love God whom you haven't seen if you do not love your brother whom you do see? And then he clarifies what he means by love. And it isn't just emotionally telling someone with a big hug, I love you. But when you see your brother in need, moved with concern and compassion to help that brother in need. Not just merely saying, I'll pray for you, God bless you. So the church at Sardis, a genuine local congregation who had started out with the truth, but here we are 30 plus years later, and it had been compromised in its devotion to truth and what it meant to be one of God's children. And he says, for those who profess that they are his followers but do not have life, I will come like a thief. The idea of the thief in the night, although erroneously done in some of the popular uh, prophecy teachings, does not refer to the rapture of the church. But as Paul makes it very clear in 1 Thessalonians 5, to the second coming of Christ where he unexpectedly comes upon the world and brings his judgment. But there are a few. There were some there who hadn't deviated from the truth, had really experienced the miracle that we would say is the miracle of grace, eternal life, They weren't relying upon a decision they made, an action they did, something they thought would make them a Christian, and relying upon that action of themselves, but were individuals who were the trophies of grace, miracles in their very being. In keeping with that theme... The fact that being a Christian is a supernatural work, we have his message to the church at Laodicea. He's the amen, that is the truth, the foundation, the faithful and true witness, the genuine disclosure of what God is like. He is the beginning or the source or the origin of the creation of God. And just like at the church at Sardis, where there was nothing spoken of by the Lord to commend that local church. The church at Sardis is the first one of the seven that are listed here, where it begins with a rebuke, with a condemnation, and no mention of something about the church that was pleasing to God, except for the few who will walk with him in white. So to the church at Laodicea. 
I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor cold. I would that you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. And what is their problem? Their temporal well-being. It was a wealthy area. And you say, you're rich. I have need of nothing. They had become complacent. They had be mistakenly confused temporal benefits with spiritual vitality. They were a group who thought that their spiritual condition was associated with the bounty that they experienced temporally. You say, I'm rich. I have, I have become wealthy. I have need of nothing. But you don't know what? That you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor and blind and naked. Now, again, some debate about the condition of this church, but I do find that nowhere in the Scripture is a genuine believer ever called blind. Nowhere in the Scripture do I ever find that a genuine believer is ever called naked. Nowhere in the Scripture do I ever find that God says a genuine believer is wretched. We see of ourselves the reality that I'm undone in my sin before God. But God calls his children his beloved ones. God calls his children those who are uh, enriched in Jesus Christ. So I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. And so here we find Christ pleading with this group in Laodicea that they come to grips with their need to not be complacent about their spiritual condition but to recognize that only in Christ can I find that which is for my well-being and makes me acceptable to God. Picture the idea of gold refined by fire. The, the fact that there is difficulties and troubles that God's people will face. When Paul spoke of the idea of what consumed him, that I may know Christ Do you remember what's involved in that process of growing in the knowledge of Christ? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And what's next? The fellowship of his sufferings. And it's a phrase that actually comes from the book on the unjust suffering of the righteous. The book of Job where Job says, I know once he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. And the recognition that it's not necessarily an easy journey for God's people as they are walking with him uh, in life. Don't be deceived, said Christ. The servant is not greater than the master. If they have hated me, they will hate you also. Because I have chosen you out of the world. White garments... Well, in the book of Revelation itself, in chapter 19, it tells us that the fine white linen are the righteous acts of the saints. 
It's to be clothed in the things that God works through his people for his glory. And to remove blindness, this eye salve, to him provide with, uh, uh, for us the key that we can have spiritual understanding. Personally, I think he's talking about people who have been lulled to sleep in their complacency but do not have spiritual life. You may see it differently, and that's fine, but both of us are going to acknowledge something's rotten in Denmark. Things are not good. And he doesn't say ignore it. He says you need to become concerned about it. He says, I advise you to buy from me the gold and to understand that those whom I love, and interestingly enough, the Greek term love translated here is not the one you're used to seeing in God dealing with his people. It is not agape, it's phileo. Those that I have an emotional attachment to. Those that are the delight of my heart. Now surely we're there in that position because of God's eternal, unchanging choice to always do what is for our benefit and good, agape. But the recognition is the God who has chosen us, who is working all things together for our good, is also the God that has an emotional delight in his children. And because of that love that he has for his own, he does not leave us in our sin. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous, therefore, and repent. Wake up out of your complacency. Recognize that there is never an appropriate time for us to be satisfied with our spiritual situation. We should be content with our temporal situation, right? Godliness with contentment is of great price. How much did you bring into this world? Absolutely nothing. How much are you going to take out of this world? The same amount. So if you have food and shelter, be content. But it never says be content with where you are spiritually. Now he's not talking about tying yourself up in knots and almost uh, consuming yourself with an erroneous idea of my spiritual devotion to Christ. But I need to understand biblical Christianity is a relationship and therefore it is not static. And I want to grow closer to him today from where I was yesterday. And this church had become complacent in their spiritual status and not realizing we haven't even begun to plumb the depths of the Lord God himself. So behold, I stand at the door and knock. What door? Of the church, not the human heart. And if anyone in Laodicea will open the door and invite me in, isn't that amazing? A local church, and where's Christ? Out there on the street instead of in here in our midst because of our self-satisfaction. 
And if the door's open, I'll come in to him, not internally, but toward him. And what are we going to do? We're going to eat together. We're going to fellowship together. We're going to sup together, particularly around the Lord's table where we do this in remembrance of him. I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. So what does it mean to be a Christian? What I need to understand is that being a Christian is a miracle of grace. And as we begin in grace, guess how it is each and every day of our walk as a Christian? It's always of grace. And as we began in our walk with Christ, how? By faith. Guess how it is that I'm to conduct myself today? In an utter dependence upon God. To give me a greater understanding of himself and to cause me to walk in the way that is pleasing to him. So instead of being self-assured, mistaken, complacent, the Christian is one who will continue to cling to Christ, that he alone is my hope. Galatians 6, where Paul dealt with the fact that people were being distracted from purity of devotion to Christ, where even considering maybe we need to do certain things to mature in Christ, he said, far be it for me that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world was crucified to me and I to the world. Because your background, your national association, your religious duties, your rituals you perform mean absolutely nothing. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But what really matters? A new creation in Christ. A miracle of grace. You'll be motivated like Paul with a desire to know him better and to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ the Lord. Because in the same way as Jesus addressed the disciples in Jerusalem in his own day, the Jews who had believed in him, he didn't tell them, go home and write it down on your notebook, on the lamps, uh, on your table by your bed, that today's the day you prayed the prayer. He said, if you are a genuine disciple of mine, you'll continue in the truth, and the truth will set you free. A hunger for God's word and a continued liberation that comes from it in their lives. Jesus said the way to eternal life is narrow and there's few that find it. And the way we'll know is by their fruit. What type of tree someone is is manifested in their life, what they desire, what they live for, and what is characteristic of them. 
Beware the false teachers, the ones who in judgment say, but Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? But Lord, didn't we work miracles in your name? But Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Because we've gotten to the point where we have humanized Christianity. And we fail to appreciate that being a Christian is supernatural. It's the ministry of the Spirit of God. And as God's people, we can know that he has genuine care and compassion for his own. And he is the one who has said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And the great encouragement for the people of God is to know, I do not lose any one of them. And the father who gave them to me is greater than all. And no one can pluck them out of my father's hand. His compassion for us is to watch over us in our daily activities and to continue to stir in us those spiritual desires to grow in our relationship with him. We live in a difficult time in America because it's so easy for people to say, I'm a Christian. And individuals can be lulled to sleep to think that because of something they did that makes them a child of God. And the reality is, it's not what you or I can ever do. All I can do is call upon him and show mercy to me, Lord, the sinner. And if I am one of his children, as an act of his grace, something supernatural has happened. It's the miracle of grace in me. And he keeps his own forever. Seek his face. Grow closer to him. Never be complacent with where you are. And never be misguided to think that your temporal status in life is an indication of your spiritual condition. My spiritual condition is the more of Christ that is being seen in me. And as I know you will say of me, Joe, you got a long way to go. And I'm going to tell you, I know I do. But so do every one of God's people. So let's hunger to know him. Let's hunger to grow in his grace. Let's hunger to be an instrument in his hand to bring his blessing into the lives of others. Because Christianity is a work of God. Being a Christian is a miracle of grace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your truth. 
and how I pray that you would keep us from complacency, you would keep us from being confused and even deceived, and substitute a work of man for what only you can do. How I pray, Father, that you would do mighty things in us and through us for your eternal glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, I pray. Amen.